Welcome, everybody, back to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. It is good to be back. It's definitely good to be talking with you again and talking about a subject that is near and dear to my heart, which is fish and seafood. Yep. The entire season of season three for Hunt, Gather, Talk is going to be about fish and seafood in all its various forms. So we're going to cover things in the ocean, things in freshwater, and some issues of things like sustainability and how-to stuff and about some species-specific stuff. And in fact, that is where we're going to kick things off. I wanted to kick off this season with one of my favorite podcast episodes of all time, and that would be my interview with Milton Love. Milton Love, if you have not heard of him, is the foremost authority on Pacific rockfish. So Pacific rockfish are this amazing series of species that exist from, well, all over the Pacific and on the Japanese side and on our side and the West. There's also a couple species in the North Atlantic, as a matter of fact. They are called the Acadian redfish. So if you've ever seen redfish up in New England, that would be rockfish as well. So it's an amazing group of fish. They're super diverse. There's a lot to talk about. And what's even cooler is... Milton Love is arguably the greatest combination of real deal scientists and a very genuinely funny guy. So this is not going to be any kind of dry podcast that you might think. And I think you guys are going to enjoy it quite a bit. And let's take it away. Well, Milton Love, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I am super happy to have you on because anyone who knows me knows that I'm kind of obsessed with rockfish. And it's nice to talk to somebody who's even more obsessed with rockfish. If possible. Yes. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, as you know, I have no life. I just sit here at my desk with my hands folded waiting for people to suggest podcasts. So it's all, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> I, I detect a bit of sarcasm in that. <laughs> oh, God forbid. Oh, no, no. So like right off the get-go, I can now hear your voice in that book that you co-wrote, The Rockfishes of the Eastern Pacific, which... I have to say, having read, I don't know, reams and reams and reams of scientific and biological things over the last 40 years, it's one of the more entertaining and informative and approachable books of biology I think I've ever read. Well, that was the intent. I must say that my co-authors were fairly lenient about my putting in a kind of an informal style and some humor. There was only one or two occasions where they basically went, you can't do that. <laughs> and, and so that was really good. And just to publicize another book, the following book, certainly more than you want to know about the fishes of the Pacific coast, which I wrote entirely on my own. I just let myself just completely go to hell and uh, had no internal or external editors. So that one really sounds like me. There was a couple of times when I would read something to my wife and she would go like, you just can't do that. And I would thank her and then just do it. <laughs> I actually know this book as well, only because I was on a three-day trip out of San Diego and the captain had this book in the salon. And, you know, I mean, you're spending hours and hours and hours on a boat going to where you're going to go fish. And this book was sitting there and just had everybody laughing their asses off about these fish that we get to know and love on the Pacific coast. There's an awful lot of variety, not just among rockfishes, but among all the fishes. And there's always something to say about any species. And if you can make it humorous, then people are more likely to read it than if it's just dry and turgid, which is like all of the scientific writing I do, which has to be in a 
horribly pedantic, completely non-humorous way. It's awful. It's awful to write. It is kind of a shame that that's been the, not only the standard, but it's kind of been like taboo to write as a normal human in scientific literature. It is. And there actually is a reason and it's an okay reason. And the basic thing is that in science, you are just conveying facts and that's all your job is. And in the discussion, you can kind of uh, extrapolate and so forth, but you can't say anything that's misleading. And the beauty of humor, if you think about it, it's a person telling their own truth, but in a way that at the beginning of the humorous bit, it misleads you. And then he tells or she tells you the truth. And laughter is that surprise at the end. Well, in science, no surprises. You're just supposed to write what you found and not surprise anybody. So like no humor. I totally get it. I uh, yeah. I used to have to write AP copy. I was a journalist for 18 years. Okay. So same thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah totally. And then as opposed to say a column, you know. Mm-hmm. Precisely. And in fact, my major professor, Al Ebling, oh, I don't know, back in whatever, 1970, told me that you should write as if you're writing for a newspaper. And so you're correct. Yeah. So how did you get involved with Rockfish? As I imagine it's a, kind of a lifelong deal, no? It is. So at the age of six, my family moved to Santa Monica, just west of uh, LA on the beach. I could throw a stone onto the beach and I started fishing. My father took me fishing when I was six on the Malibu Pier. And I think I caught one white croaker and two shiner perch. And soon after announced I was going to be an ichthyologist, a fish biologist, which I never diverted from that, which shows a profound lack of imagination on my (laughs) part. Uh, And then at the age of, I think about nine, so it must have been about, yeah, about 1956, my father took me fishing on a sport fishing boat from Malibu. I think it was the Lenbrook. And I'm guessing it was Frenchie Marjolin, who uh, was the skipper. It was probably November. So they tried fishing for calico bass, but it was too cold. Nothing bit. So they went out to 300 feet of water and started fishing for rockfish. And that was my first experience with them. And we probably caught nine or 10 species. I didn't know the names, but I could tell that they were kind of related to each other. And there was fat, squat, red ones. And, you know, there was sleeker, brownish one. There was just everything you can imagine. And that was my first experience. And I was kind of blown away by the diversity. And that was the start. So like when I was nine and then in college, I just by sheer stubbornness decided to do a master's degree and a PhD Uh, involving rockfish. And fortunately, my major professor was very long suffering and he went just, oh, what the hell? Go ahead. So that's how it started. And I never really lost an interest in this remarkable group of fishes. Yeah. I mean, I kind of had the same experience many, many years later because, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh And so I grew up on the same kind of deal going on party boats and head boats down the shore and on Long Island. I was a deckhand. Oh, good. And, you know, so I've fished commercially in Alaska. So I've got uh-huh. a lot of sea hours under my belt. But as a kid, though, like I always loved the idea of bottom fishing uh-huh. because you never knew what you're going to get. That's right. And probably in those days, there's still a lot of cod to fish for, things like that. It was sort of seasonal. So the main yeah. deal for us during the summer months in the nice weather was porgies, Black sea bass, mm-hmm. uh, bergals, blackfish, tatog. Occasionally, a tilefish would come in a little shallower. Oh, yeah. 
you know, it was your same six or seven different kinds of fish. So I moved to California in 2004, ironically, to cover Governor Schwarzenegger. Ah, yes. <laughs> and yes, indeed. You know, I mean, if you cover politics for a living, you got to do something to keep yourself sane. So sure. So I would fish all the time and I discovered the party boat fleet in San Francisco Bay and Emeryville. Uh And what are these rockfish? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like a bass kind of deal. Like, all right, cool. I like that. Yeah. So I went out and we didn't fish the Farallons that first time, but everybody was catching these different fish. And they all kind of sort of look like black sea bass. Right. But they were all different colors and different gill plates. And some were super spiny and some were not. And I had the same experience. I was like, wow, this is just super trippy. What are all these things? And they're like, oh, they're rock cod or rockfish. Indeed. And I should have also said from my childhood, the other reason I was interested in rockfish is um, when I caught them from party boats, I would immediately sell them illegally to people who were waiting for passengers to sell them illegally. And I would make enough money to pay for the next trip, usually not much more. And it was a different time. I never saw a warden. I knew it was illegal. But there was no enforcement, at least at the time, say 1960 or so, at all. So there was a number of us, all of the same age, you know, 15, 16, 18, who would really catch fish just to pay for the next trips. It was kind of a benign addiction, I suppose. It's funny. I did the exact same thing on the Jersey Shore to the local Italian restaurants with like... Yeah. Oh, that's... uh, that's like, even more intense. Oh, my like God. Porgies and, and they, they wanted the porgies and they wanted weak fish. Mm-hmm. I never thought about peddling them to anybody except elderly immigrant women who flocked there and they knew exactly what times the boats would come in. And it was jolly, man. I love that stuff. It was. It definitely was. I mean, if you ever seen the TV show, The Sopranos, that's exactly where yeah. I grew up. Oh, <laughs> that's great. Oh, my God. <laughs> So the coolest thing about them is the diversity, I think, from a regular sort of Joe Sixpack kind of angle on it. But I think the first thing that struck me as I started to dig into this set of fishes is they're all Sebastis. Like, what are there, 75 of them? Oh, so they're all in the same genus. And there's about 105 worldwide. Oh, wow. Most of them, as you say, about 70 live on the Pacific coast from Baja, California to Alaska. But about 30 live around Korea and Japan. There's about four in the North Atlantic, say Iceland and Canada and the like. And then there's two that live off South America and South Africa. And they're very closely related genetically. So this would be the equivalent. So we're in the genus Homo, Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. Um, There are no other members of that genus that are still alive, but it would be yeah, similar. It's like we whacked them all, right? Uh, probably. <laughs> they're, for whatever reason, they're no longer here. And, and knowing our psychology, yeah, we whacked them. And probably about 35,000 years ago, the last of our relatives died, though we still carry Neanderthal genes. And maybe, Denisovan uh, too. And Denisovan. And probably there's another one they just discovered back in the China area. Anyway, so it would be equivalent to there being a hundred different closely related humans living on Earth. That's what the rockfishes have carried out. So they speciate like bats out of hell. And huh. uh, you can actually find off California two species of rockfish that are so closely related that they're just barely different genetically. The black and yellow rockfish and the gopher rockfish. So if you look at them, 
first of all, their body shape is identical. Hmm. The only real difference is black and yellows live from about, say, 10 feet of water to about 50 feet of water. And gophers live from about 30 feet of water to 120 feet of water. And the only real difference is black and yellows are indeed black and yellow. And gophers are brown and pink. But genetically, you've got to look really hard to find differences and you'll occasionally find a hybrid individual. So those species are in the process of becoming really distinct. And if we look 50,000 years from now, they would be completely distinct. So there's speciation going on right now. That's crazy. So I've caught buckets of gophers and I don't know that I've ever caught a black and yellow. So um, are you up in the San Francisco area? Yeah, yeah. So I typically fish rockfish from San Diego to Alaska, but typically uh-huh. I'm in the North Pacific here in, uh, in like the Northern California area. Yeah, yeah. So black and yellows, they've been found as far north as Northern California, but they really poop out right around Monterey, whereas uh, okay. gophers, they're still abundant. Uh, oh, gosh, to Cape Mendocino or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's all kinds of variation in ranges. I mean, there are some species that never come south of Oregon, or actually some of them even British Columbia. And then there's a few that only live in the Gulf of California. So there's a wide variety of uh, geographic ranges. It's funny. I didn't know this until I read your book, but my mom is from Gloucester, Massachusetts, Uh and really Ipswich, just north of it, but same difference. And there's a fish that we get out there, we call a redfish. Yeah. And I just grew up with them and it's like a, they call them ocean perch or, you know, Mm -hmm. redfish or whatever. And then not to be confused with the redfish from the Gulf of Mexico, of course. Exactly. But I recently saw one, I don't know, post 2004, after my introduction to the rockfish. I'm like, God damn, this looks like a rockfish. Sure enough. (laughs) Yes. And in fact, the original rockfish, the first species that was named Sebastes, was named by a French guy named Cuvier who was really a remarkable dude, man. This guy was a government official through the last of the Louis before the French Revolution. He was a government official uh, during the time of Napoleon, during the terror, and he was a government official after Napoleon was defeated under uh, Louis XVI, and he never lost his head. And he was a high government official. So the dude was really talented in that respect. He was also the major fish taxonomist, the person who named hundreds of species of fishes and other things. And the first rockfish he named was a Sebastes from Norway, I think, and mm-hmm. which is also found in your area, neck of the woods. So rosefish or redfish or ocean perch is probably the original or one of the original rockfishes. And it's very closely related. And what we think happened was that all four species or maybe five in the North Atlantic are derived from a rockfish that swam from the Alaska area all the way across the Arctic to the North Atlantic about 3 million years ago. About that time, the ice shelf melted. Most of the pack ice melted in the Arctic, and that allowed a lot of species of fish to swim back and forth, but primarily from the Pacific to the Atlantic. And so the ancestor of the rockfish there are there now probably came about 3 million years ago. That's interesting. So you get the halibut and codfish do the same thing. Halibut and codfish did the same thing. And there's also some poachers and oobly goobly things that no one catches that uh, <laughs> also snail fishes also did hagfish the same thing. Too. Hagfish, perhaps, though hagfish are so old and have been around for so long that 
it's unclear how they moved and when. So how do you get the crazy one down by Chile? So that came about during an ice age. And basically what prevents rockfishes right now from like just swimming from Baja California to Peru is the water's too warm. Mm. And it's even too warm for the larvae, which can drift for a month or more. But during the, uh, the last ice age, or maybe the one before that, the ocean currents were sufficiently cold that larvae probably once drifted south from Baja California to Peru or Colombia or Ecuador and took residence. And those species, two or maybe three, are related to all of the rockfishes that have those five light spots on their back, starries mm. and starries, roses yeah. and rose thorns and all those things. Yeah. Shout out to our sponsor, Filson. Filson is based in the Pacific Northwest, Seattle to be exact, and they are the maker of some of the toughest fishing and outdoor gear you can possibly buy. I've been buying it for 20 years, and some of my 20-year-old stuff is still good. You can buy Filson products at filson.com, and there are all kinds of good stuff for being out on the water, in the field, or in the duck blind even. They have a new duck hunting section. They have always had some of the best upland gear there is. And their fishing and foul weather gear is second to none. Let's talk about color for a second. Mm -hmm. So one of the beauties and, you know, both just physical beauty of these fish and also just the thing that delights everyone who catches them. I always tell new anglers here in my area or really anywhere in the Pacific coast, they want to know about, oh, well, I want to go fishing, but I, I'm not really into salmon trolling because, it, you know, you can go for hours and not catch one and like go rock fishing. Yeah. Every single time they come back from rock fishing, they're astonished at the rainbow. Right on. So what's the explanation for all that? I mean, is it depth? Is it just sexual selection or does anybody really know? Yeah, we know as much as scientists. Scientists are trained never to know anything. All you can do is kind of approach the truth and mm. you hope that your approaches get better and better over time as more data comes in. So the basic principle is the deeper the rockfish lives, the more likely it is to be red, yellow, or orange. And the reason mm. for that is that once you get below 30 feet, there is no red light. And once you get below, I can't remember, 60 feet, there's no orange light and so forth. And by the time you get down to, I can't remember, 120 feet or something, all you have is um, green and blue light. So anything with red pigment in 60 feet of water, it looks black. Ah. And so there's been selection for deeper water rockfish to look black because that way a harbor seal or a sea lion can't eat them and their prey can't see them. So to flip it another way, if you're a blue colored fish in 600 feet of water, people can see you. A predator can see you. So there's been strong selection for those bright colors in deep water. The flip side is you don't want to be red necessarily and live in 20 feet of water because you just stand out like a sore thumb so that rockfish is in shallow water they tend to be browns and they tend to be black and they tend to be slate blue and colors like that um, that's the first thing and then the second thing is that if you look at the typical rockfish the back and sides are colored but the belly is shiny colored and the reason and that's called counter shading and that's really striking on blue rockfish and black rockfish and yellowtails. And the reason for that is if you're underneath a blue rockfish, 
what you see is all that sunlight coming down. It's kind of shiny and you see the shiny belly of a blue rockfish and it kind of blends in. And so again, it makes it harder for predators who are underneath a blue rockfish to actually see the blue rockfish. It disrupts their silhouette. So there's been selection in many fishes, not just oh, rockfish. Yeah. Like sharks are famous for that. Sharks are, are infamous for that. Tunas, I mean, almost all fish that live above the bottom have shiny uh, light colored bellies. So yeah, people are pretty sure that that's the reason. That makes sense. But then you have to ask, well, um, oh, I'll give you an example. So they're really closely related rockfishes that live in say 300 feet of water. And a good example would be um, starries, which mm -hmm. are gorgeous. You know, they're orange and they usually have kind of profuse yellow spots, but sometimes they're actually blue, which is kind of interesting. So there's starries and closely related to them would be like rosies. Okay, so rosies are kind of purpley with uh, kind of reddish vermiculations on them. And they're pretty closely related and they live in the same reef. Well, why are they so vastly different if they live in the same reef and kind of do the same things? I mean, what was the selective advantage for looking like really different? There is no really good answer for those kind of questions. Do they eat different things? No, probably not. By the way, it's really hard to figure out what deep water rockfish eat because they have swim bladders, which are essentially like little balloons inside their bodies that are used for buoyancy. And when you bring a rockfish up, the gas inside the swim bladder expands. It's like blowing a balloon up inside their bodies. When that happens, it forces their stomach out their mouths. Oh, and yeah, the, that's right. And that kicks out all of their food contents so that a biologist who catches one goes like, well, we can't find anything in their stomachs, usually, because they've basically coughed up everything. And therefore, for a lot of these deep water rockfishes, we really don't know much about what they eat. You can kind of hypothesize. And occasionally you find one with food still in the mouth and so forth. By the way, for a long time, it was assumed that if you caught a rockfish and it had its mouth hanging out and its eyes were all bulgy, that if you sent it back down to depth, let's say 300 feet, that that rockfish was dead. But it's not true. It turns no, out no. that in a majority of cases, in spite of the fact that that fish did not look happy, um, <laughs> totally, <laughs> it, it, it survives the experience, which is the reason that there's now a whole industry for devices that will send your rockfish back down. Every single um, time I fish rockfish, I set up two rods, one to catch them, one to bring them back down. Yeah, that's that really a good idea. They're not all going to survive, but a substantial a majority will survive, particularly if you catch them in... I don't know, 60 feet of water, 100 feet, 120 feet. The only exception is if you gut hook them, and that's true of rockfish or fish in general. Well, yeah. If you gut hook them, then you've done so much interior damage that mortality rates like super high. Or if you hook them uh, like in the gills or something like that, and there's a lot of bleeding. But a normally caught rockfish, if you take care, survivorship is like surprisingly high, I should say. See, I use a descender, but I am in the minority of rock fishermen because I know a bit about the biology and I know that what everybody seems to want to do, which is to take a needle or a knife and poke that stomach uh -huh. and throw them overboard. That's not good, is it? It's not the best. If you insist on doing that, there will be some percent that will survive. Um, but it's a much lower percent than if you use descending gear of various sorts. Part of my PhD dissertation was to go out on party boats in Santa Barbara. I rode party boats once a week for like three years and measured and identified every fish that was caught and 
just to love you because that's got to be so much fun for an angler. Like, hey, what is this one? Oh, yeah. In fact, the crew loved me because I was like a constant. I came out. I smoked dope with them on the way out. (laughs) By the way, that was a little scientific experiment that I participated in. Oh, for seasickness? Uh, no, no, uh, it was just for fun. Um, so, the, uh, you know, after a couple times, I become not part of the crew necessarily, but like a friend. And um, I was sitting up in the wheelhouse. It's like uh, seven o'clock in the morning and the Hornet was going out and skipper Frank and his brother, Tony, who was the deckhand, they were smoking a joint and Tony handed me the joint. And my only concern was for the scientific method. Could I measure fish if I was just stoned out of my mind. And it turns out that you can. Um, the, the only thing is the passengers wonder what's so damn funny. And, and, but short of that, uh, indeed you can. I don't even know how we got on this. Uh, you're measuring. Oh, and- I was measuring fish. Oh, and then uh, oh, poking holes. So yep. um, I was also working on the life history of the olive rockfish. And part of the life history is you try to figure out, well, do they move around at all? Do they migrate? And uh, one of the ways you can do that is basically you take the fish and you stick a tag in the side of their body. And the tag has a little anchor that goes inside the fish, ideally crossways through these little bones that come out from their their uh, vertebra, uh, below their dorsal fin. Oh, you go there, okay. Then on the tag, it looks like a little piece of spaghetti. It's usually brightly colored. And on it was my name, a code number, like 007, and then my phone number. And if you caught it, people would call me and go like, oh, I caught this fish here. And I know where I tagged it. And I could figure out if it had moved or not. Well, the point is, you get an olive rockfish in 50 feet of water and you bring it up and it's all puffed up. And you try to throw it back. And, uh, you know, a seagull gets it. That ain't no good. There were no descender devices in uh, 1974. But I had a syringe and I would run the needle through the side of the fish into the swim bladder and I would suck out the gas. You can just press on the fish, but it takes a long time. And I just wanted the fish into the damn water. I have seen tons of biologists do that, actually. Oh, yeah. And in fact, you can tell to a certain extent what species you have by the taste of the gas in their bodies. The archetypal, <laughs> the, uh, the archetypal taste is from Boccaccio. Boccaccio smell fruity and they have a very distinct smell different than any other rockfish and the swim bladder tastes that way what's interesting about bocacci's is that they're a very old species their nearest relative among the rockfishes is five or six million years old i mean they go way back whereas as i mentioned black and yellows and gophers probably diverted thirty thousand years ago so you can hypothesize that oh well maybe 6 million or 10 million years ago, and there were rockfishes here 10, 12, 14 million years ago. Maybe that was a characteristic. Maybe they all smelled fruity for all we know. Anyway, so the survivorship was pretty good based on the fact that I got a lot of tag returns. I hypothesize, however, that if I stabbed them with a knife so that the wound was larger, not so good. Uh, So on the other hand, if you're on a party boat today, they probably frown on you coming out with a bunch of points and, uh, you know, they think you're like a meth addict or something like that. So that's not so good. Um, so it was only biologists whatever. I've ever seen do that. Yeah. But yeah. Most guys will either use the end of a hook or the point of their knife right at that yeah. right where it's bulging. I like those pneumatic descenders. They're like 20 bucks. And if you attach it to hundred pound mono, you're never going to lose it. And, right. and the fish 
always swim away because you can tell as you're when you descend them, it's like nothing, 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 nothing. And then all of a sudden it wakes up and then it pops away. I participated in a video called Rockfish Barrow Trauma, something like that, which was a video that just talks about descenders and why you should use them and the different kinds of descenders. And the woman who created it and got the bucks to pay for it asked me to be in it. And I said, well, I don't really want to be in it, but I have a rockfish puppet that would love to be in it. So uh, the rockfish <laughs> puppet was in it and uh, kind of introduced the whole video. I think it's called Rockfish Barrow Trauma. If you do that, it's a B-A-R-A-U Barrow Trauma. Right. Uh, it'll show up. And uh, Ray Troll, who is the fabulous Ketchikan artist who does lots of art, I mean, hundreds of pieces, uh, T-shirts and so forth with rockfishes and salmon. By the way, oh, I- are in your book, right? Yeah, yeah. The cover of the Rockfish book is a Rachel painting and raise a trip, man. He's uh, in a league by himself. Um, I hate salmon. I, I just think that they're dorky fish. And and uh, <laughs> I always just have these crazy like, you know, you love what you're studying, of course. And then yeah. it's like it's like Yankees and the Red Sox kind of weird rivalries between. Sure, <laughs> sure. The thing about uh, salmon, first of all, is they're like one trick ponies. And they're not even very good at that one trick. They're born in fresh water. And then depending on the species, they go into salt water for two to six years. And then in theory, they come back to the same damn place to reproduce. Well, it turns out they're not even actually very good at that. No, and there's actually a lot of straying, as you know, to different creeks and rivers. And, and so want, that's it, man. Do you want to hear a good one? It. Yeah, sure. So speaking of wayward salmon, a guide friend of mine was fishing the Feather River. Mm -hmm. two years ago, and his client caught a pink. So that is unusual. <laughs> there used to be, before people screwed up all of the rivers, there was this very small pink run in Northern California, a sustainable one. And then we insist on putting dams across everything and logging the riverside so there's erosion and blah, blah, blah. And that was extirpated. So in theory, that's how you can bring back pinks is just by straying. So Ray invites me to give a talk. I give kind of a fish talk where I talk about interesting fish. He said, well, here in Ketchikan, we've got an auditorium, a monthly meeting. Why don't you come up? You're going to be in Sitka anyway for a meeting. Why don't you just fly over to Ketchikan? I'll pick you up. You can stay in my house and give a talk. And I went, okay, cool. So two weeks before the local newspaper calls me up and they want to do an interview, fine. And I give my little spiel about how much I hate salmon. I, I said, they're dorky fish. And I feel like any fish that can't hurt you when you catch them is just, <laughs> is just dumb. And a salmon can't do anything. It could give you a hickey probably. So I did my song and dance and felt good. And then Ray picked me up at the Ketchikan airport and he said, well, you managed to offend the entire town of Ketchikan by saying bad things about salmon because salmon really are important to people in Southeast Alaska and well, British sure. Columbia, right? Major economic species. So I went, well, what can I do? What do you want me to do? He said, I want you to apologize. And I said, how do you apologize to the whole town? He said, well, we have a public radio station and I've scheduled you for 4.30 to apologize to the town. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, you know, I've had four years of therapy. I can apologize to anybody about anything. So sure enough, they had a kind of community spot and uh, I apologize. You may have culpa. I'm a bad boy, blah, blah, blah. But I still don't like salmon. I just think they're stupid. The other thing about salmon, the thing I really hate is if I tried to get money for rockfish research, biological research, that would be like super hard. But if you're working on salmon because 
we have screwed up things so badly, uh, money just rains down from the sky. And yep. um, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent like, how can we bring salmon back? And the answer is, well, you just do away with the dams. And uh, that's a huge part. You do away with the dams and the salmon can go back to where they used to spawn and you're going to get more salmon. People don't want to do away with the dams, which to a certain extent is understandable. But why should we pour more money into salmon research when I've just told you the answer for like nothing? So I just hate that. I hate that all that money is like just going. It's like taking one $20 bill and napalming it every second. Bam, bam, <laughs> bam. It's horrible. So that just brought up two interesting points. I want to start with the first one. So any fish mm-hmm. that can't hurt you. So everybody yeah. who's ever caught a rockfish knows that they're a little bit prickly. Yes, and they are. I read in your book that many of them have some kind of venom involved in there for so talk about that for a second because it's always something on the boat that people to are they by the poisonous or not or or everyone knows that if you get jabbed it's going to get infected in three two one and then there it is but i know it hurts so the first thing is that rockfish are derived we don't know 20 30 million years ago from scorpion fishes from tropical scorpion fishes probably off of the Philippines, someplace like that. And that's where the ancestor rockfish came from. So those scorpion fishes, they were just loaded with venom. Every single spine had a gland at its base that produced venom and a little channel that ran all the way up the spine. There was nobody around, but if you were there, that little bit of tissue that runs all the way up the spine, that gets into your body and excretes or secretes that venom. And in the case of stonefishes, people die, particularly before anti-venom mortality was like 50%. So those tropical scorpion stonefishes, those were like, and are super venomous. Uh, Rockfishes over the millennia and over the millions of years have lost a lot of that venom capability. And it depends on the species of rockfish. They've only actually looked at maybe 12 species of rockfish. So we don't know how much venom most of them have, but almost certainly almost every rockfish some of those spines, the dorsal spines, the anal spines, and there's one on the pelvic fin, has this venom gland. By the way, the spines on the cheeks don't have venom. So the first thing that happens is, of course, it hurts because you've been pricked by something sharp. And the second thing is, since many of these spines have a venom, you will feel the effects. Some people seem to be more sensitive than others, but almost everybody agrees that if you get stung by a boccaccio, for instance, it will hurt. Or a quillback. Or a quillback. And it'll hurt more than just being pricked by a sharp object. And I was a deckhand for a while in Santa Monica. And I was never stung by the scorpion fish that lives out here. But I've been stung dozens of times by rockfishes. Almost every deckhand, I don't have this story, but almost every deckhand who's worked off California has what I call a fester story, Mm -hmm. which uh, basically involves, right, you know, a passenger swings four (laughs) rockfishes over the side and it hits the deckhand in the kneecap or some other place. And I don't know. And the great stories, the spine snaps off and it's in there and it festers and pus forms. And the guy takes a filleting knife and slashes at it and pus is dripping down into his boot or, you know, stories to that effect. Those are real stories. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, can, they, I can attest. I had it in the fleshy part between my thumb and forefinger on my right hand. Uh-huh. And it wasn't that huge, but I did need a knife to cut this thing. And then, boink, there was the end of the spine. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've never actually had that. I've had a hook 
go from a, a treble hook from a rock jig go into my forefinger and I had to cut the hook off and then go to the emergency hospital and have it cut out. But I've never had a Fester story like yours, the, kind of the classic Fester yeah, story. Not, no bueno. Congratulations, though. On, <laughs> Yay. On, on uh, you know, it's, it's like a badge of honor. I should probably go out right now and get stung. So I, <laughs> now I feel bad. Now I feel jealous and angry at you. Oh, uh, you know, you'll get over, it, I think. Maybe. I probably. I, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, which is eFish. eFish delivers fresh, never frozen, wild, American caught day boat seafood right to your doorstep. These guys have supplied seafood for every Michelin three-star restaurant in the country and even the Pope. And now they're shipping to you listeners. What's unique about eFish is that they don't have a warehouse full of fish. They simply connect you straight to the source. This means that in most cases, your product is still swimming when you placed your order. Their business operates the same way I order fish for my fishermen friends across the country. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. It doesn't get much fresher than that unless you catch it yourself. eFish takes an incredibly personable approach to purchasing seafood online. If you aren't sure exactly what you're looking to purchase, they are more than happy to help with recommendations and pass on their wealth of knowledge about seafood and the products they are selling. With eFish, you can always be sure that your fish is ethically sourced, never treated with chemicals, and is handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives at your doorstep. If you want fresh seafood for your next dinner, check out efish.com. That is e-fish.com. Get 10% off your first order with my code HuntGatherTalk. Again, and that is e-fish.com. So the second thing that you brought up was about, you know, money raining from the sky for salmon because, you know, but the fact of the matter is rockfish are a commercial species too. And one of the things that people definitely are interested in knowing about is like, well, okay. So we know that some of them can live forever, more or less. Yes. And we know that there was a crash of rockfish. Was Mm -hmm. it 20 years ago, maybe? Yeah. Ish. Ish, you know? And so, Talk about commercial rock fishing and how that can be done or is done. Or have we stabilized? Do we have a normal kind of sustainable rock fishery here? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, and then do you think the protected areas are working? So what happened? As you said, most of the rock fishes on, let's just say, the Pacific coast from Washington to Baja, California, most of them are economically important. They are commercial species and or they are recreational species. And I'm going to lump recreational fishing in with commercial fishing because there are so many recreational anglers, particularly off California, that they can do just as much damage to some species, not all of them, but Mm -hmm. some as commercial fishermen. So what happened? Well, everything was fine until 70s and 80s. So what happened to the rockfish populations in the 70s and 80s? Well, the first thing that happened is that draggers, commercial trawlers, used to be limited to where they could drag. They could only drag on mud and sand because if they dragged over rocks, it would tear up their gear. And most rockfish live over rocks, so that was good. So for a while, only hook and liners caught rockfish, both commercial and recreational, and that was pretty sustainable. So then the first thing that happened was draggers developed roller gear, which is basically humongous tires. All right, so all of a sudden you had humongous tires bouncing around over rocks, and all of a sudden... Rockfishes that were protected by the rocks, no longer protected. So that wasn't good. Second thing, it used to be that the only kind of gill nets that were available until the late 60s were made out of either cotton 
or other artificial material, but they were really expensive. So the typical trammel net people, gill net people, no bueno, you don't want to put them on rocks, it would tear it up and it costs too much money. Well, then they developed monofilament gill nets, cheap, really cheap. And so everybody who was interested in gill netting switched over to monofilament. Fish can't see it, it's cheap. You can lay them right on rocks. And if it tears up, who cares? And so all of a sudden, the rockfishes are going like, well, this sucks, man. <laughs> all of a sudden, they're catching all of us. And indeed, we were. The other thing was that electronics got a lot better. Used to be back in the 60s when I was a kid and a deckhand fishing in Santa Monica and the spots were 10 miles out. Orrin Winfield, the skipper, he had a uh, compass and he had a depth finder. That was all he had. He didn't have Loran. He didn't have... GPS. He didn't have radar. And so if it was foggy and he tried to find the spots 10 miles out, he couldn't see any landmarks. So it was hard to go back to the same place over and over and over again. Well, all of a sudden, radar, Loran came in. Loran was good, but not great. And all of a sudden there was GPS. And any schmuck with a rowboat could go back to the same rock over and over again and just pound these reefs. So all of those things led to massive overfishing all up and down the coast. Again, Washington through California, because uh, we actually don't know the state of stocks in Mexico. There are no stock assessments really. In, you know, it's not Mexico. a very popular fish there. Well, I mean, it depends. The artisanal fisheries off of Ensenada, for instance, and uh, between Ensenada and Putabanda and all the way down to uh, Isla Cedros, all those folks that fish mainly hook and line, but the gillnet, they catch a lot of rockfish. And most of them are then sent to the Mercado Negro, the huge black market. I mean, black market, not in a legal sense, but it's painted black in mm. Ensenada. So you go there and there's like 40 or 50 stalls, ah. different vendors. <clears throat> there's a ton of rockfish there. But most of what we know was on our Pacific coast. And so by the 90s, when the National Marine Fisheries Service finally wised up and started doing stock assessments, really good ones, all of a sudden they're going like, wow, Calcot are down to like 3% of their unfished levels and Boccaccio down to seven and Yellow Eye down to 2%. And so there was a small group of rockfishes that were terribly overfished. There's a kind of a cutoff at 20% below uh, unfished levels. When you're down to 20%, then the federal government legally has to take draconian measures. And so they did. So basically, there were like teeny quotas, like bycatch quotas. And if the hake fishery, you're targeting hake, but you got widows, as soon as that tiny widow bycatch allowable limit was reached, then the whole fake hake fishery was shut down. It had profound effects. And the models said that, oh, well, you know, this may take a, a century to bring these fish back. But I think to most people's intense surprise, the fish came back really fast. And I can't remember when these were installed. I think it was probably the mid 90s. By 2015 or so, all the populations other than yellow eyes, I think. And Calcot. Um, well, Calcot are now rebuilt. Oh, and we still um, can't keep them. Uh, yeah, you can. Uh, I mean, you can keep very small numbers. So that is so. Not so, where I live. So here's the deal. Okay. So, so finish the thought. So the populations now are back above the magic 20%, which is still, I mean, it's yeah. not fabulous, but it's better than it was. So the stocks have mostly been, quote unquote, rebuilt. 
So now there is a certain move in Sacramento, and they've loosened the regulations on bocacci's and canaries for sure. Canaries for sure, and widows. By the way, link cod were overfished. Those came back real fast, <laughs> much faster. And yeah, a little side note. Remember that one year, about four years ago, where they let us take three a day? Yeah. That was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings up your point about cow cut. So one of the guys who works for me part-time, Merritt McRae, used to own a sport fishing party boat for decades, you know, rent a boat. And so he's kind of the go-to person to talk about how recreational anglers, particularly people who own party boats, how they feel about different regulations. And we were talking, I don't know, a few months ago about cow cod. And he said, yeah, there's this kind of move to loosen the cow cod regs. He said, but my associates are totally against it. I'm going like, well, why? He said, well, what we think is going to happen is they're going to loosen the regs, not totally, but there's going to be a larger quota and they'll meet the quota. They'll kind of shoot over the quota and then they will just hammer us again, not us in his sense, but they're going to hammer the industry again and we'll go back to the battle days of tiny bycatch and more regulation. So he said some of the guys who run the party boats, they don't want the regulations changed at all. So we'll see. I don't know how it's going to play out. But um, a lot of my research used to be to look at the fishes that live around oil platforms off California. Hmm. And we did scuba surveys on most of them, but we also used a little two-person submarine. It'd be me or someone else in my lab and a pilot. And that's how we surveyed the fishes that lived in the deeper parts of these platforms. Platforms go down to about 1,300 feet of water. And so we would look at the fish populations around platforms and then also natural reefs. And you could see, we started in 95, that by 2011, when we finished, that things like uh, Bocacci's and to a certain extent, Calcad, we were seeing more of them. There was no question that these regs kind of worked, some aspect. Now, to your point about how well marine protected areas are working. So I just stay clear of that whole topic because that's a losing proposition. Coming out and talking about MPAs, someone's going to hate you. And, you know, (laughs) I'm just too old and tired to have people hate on me. And I remember when the Calcod conservation areas were created, I used to read these recreational anglers websites, bloody decks or bloody heads or bloody something. And, and there was a couple others. And I remember reading one saying they hoped I would die me Milton love. And I'm going like, what the hell is that about? Jeez. (laughs) And they blame me. They blamed my research for the Calcod conservation area. And I'm going like, what? And at that point I thought, there's no upside to raising my head above the parapet because it's just going to get shot off. So I'm happy to talk about marine protected areas, but uh, I've played no role in creation or anything about that. I'll say from an anglers perspective, since they were put in, uh, the rock fishing has been better. This is in my area. I mean, I just, that's just anecdotal. That is anecdotal, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Anecdotes often have, some basis in truth. Sometimes they have no basis. I'll give you, we'll come back to marine protected areas, but I'll give you an example where they have no basis in truth. So when they were going to set up the Calcod Conservation Area, which was designed to protect Calcod and is basically a bunch of outer banks in uh, Southern California, Cortez and Tanner, the 60 mile bank, uh, places like that. The California 
Fishery Commission got a letter from uh, hook and line rockfish commercial fisherman. I won't name him. I think he's still alive. Don't want to embarrass him. And he said, basically, you know, there are plenty of cow cod. This is just stupid. Plenty of cow cod. He said, I can go out to Cortez Bank and basically fill my boat up with cow cod. And he did the math. He said, in one acre, I caught X number of cow cod. Doesn't matter. And he said, and the Cortez Bank is whatever it is, 100,000 acres. So if you multiply the number of cow cod I caught in an acre with 100,000 acres, you come up with this humongous number of cow cod. He said, there's no problem. And I remember at some meeting, I said, so you randomly just drift across the bank. And he said, no, no, no. There's just a few spots that have all these cow cod. And I went <laughs> like, well, to myself, I went like, this is no use. This is like no fucking use. Like you found uh, and, the one and, spot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and indeed, there are spots. We took the submarine out to Cortez. A lot of it, no cow cod, but there are some spots where you're going like, oh, shit, look at all these cow cod. Oh, my God. So in that letter, parenthetically, there was another thing, which was, why don't we have hatcheries for rockfish, for cow cods? And he said, it's done with salmon. You can just take cow cod sperm and cow cod eggs. You can create little baby cow cod. And he didn't realize that rockfishes have internal fertilization. Right. They're like humans. And what he was suggesting- uh, or like most of the and sharks. Surf, surf perches too. And surf perches, right. So he was basically saying, you know, you want another human? You could take an egg and put it in a Petri dish and a sperm and you get a fertilized egg. And after nine months, you just watch that Petri dish and you'll get a baby. I mean, that's exactly the equivalent. And I remember- It'd be actually, a trippy sci-fi movie. It would be a trippy sci-fi movie. <laughs> and uh, maybe we can monetize this, you and I. And uh, we can find some- 20-year-old who runs a Hollywood studio and make a pitch and uh, just take the money and run is Seems what like we would do. And then go rock fishing. And then go rock cod fishing. So anyway, um, there are basically two broad, well, there's actually three broad exclusion zones that have been created, types of zones. There was the cow cod conservation area, which is designed initially purely for cow cod, but had the effect of protecting other fishes. There are these series of MPAs, marine protected areas, that dot the kind of nearshore area along California. And then there are these depth exclusion areas, and I can't even keep track of what they are anymore. Well, they just loosened them up this year. So what are they now? 360 to something? You can't SoCal can fish really deep now, which is kind of cool. Right. Okay. So in the bad old times, I can't remember, you couldn't fish deeper like than 180 or something. Yeah, it was something like, like it was like, again, draconian. So there's all of these different kinds of regulatory bodies. And I don't think there's any question that if you combine all of these things, yeah, I'm sure that had an effect on bringing rockfishes back and lingcod back. Now, which of them was most important or did you have to have them all? Or I don't know. What it comes down to is if you catch less of a species, then the species usually benefits. And yeah. you can catch less of a species by creating a marine protected area. You can catch less of a species by just having a really low quota. You can do it by size class. You can do it by gear type. A lot of ways you can do it. It turns out that with rockfishes, the greatest benefit to the population is not catching the big ones because the larger a female is, 
the healthier the larvae are. Quick question. Um, I don't know, just my observation, and I don't know if this is entirely true, and you might know. Is it true that in all fish species, at least all game, pretty normal game fish species, that the big giant ones are always the big breeding females? Because I know this is stripers, sharks, halibut, um, a few other fish where like, if it's a big giant individual, it's likely a big breeding female. So actually what you're asking is, do females grow larger than males? In yes. Okay. And in many species, absolutely they do. In rock fishes, usually not. Ah. Um, Having said that, there are a few species where the females get larger than males. There are no rockfishes where the males get larger than females. The flip side can be said in the sheephead, where fishes start out as females. When they mature, oh, yeah. they're females, right? And it when they get rasses. to be, yeah. And so when they get to be a certain size and age, they become males. And that's true for parrotfishes. Parrotfishes and wrasses are now in the same family. So not all the wrasses change sex. I don't think the tog do. Uh, I don't think they do either. And in fact, Senorita, the little cigar-shaped uh, kind of pinky wrasse that lives in Southern California, they don't change. Mm. On the other hand, rock wrasses, which live in Southern California, they do. So it's a mixed bag. So to answer your question, if a gender gets bigger than the other gender in a species, it tends to be female it gets bigger but that's not always true okay. so back to marine protected areas my feeling is i would never promise anybody anything about a marine protected area um i was sitting at a meeting with james bonsack who works at the national marine fishery service he's one of the first people who suggested marine protected areas and back in the 80s that's what he told me he said I never promise that there's going to be bigger fish inside and that the bigger fish will spill over outside and the fishing will be better. He said, no, 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 no. He said, what I say is it's the right thing to do. And he goes like Yosemite. It was the right thing to do. And no one promised that the mule deer population or whatever they've got there will spill over from Yosemite into the adjacent area and people can shoot them. No one ever suggests that. They just said, this is a really cool place. Let's protect it. So that's my feeling is that if someone suggests a marine protected area, I go like, well, is this a really cool place? Yeah. All right. So maybe we should protect it. But I just don't fall on the side of, well, we got to protect everything. I was a commercial fisherman. I was a sport fisherman. I like both industries. I think they should both survive, but they have to share the ocean with everybody else, including the fish. So the hardest thing for humans to be, and one of the reasons we have global warming, the hardest thing for people to be is moderate in their behavior. <laughs> True. Because that takes using the non-reptilian part of your brain, your forebrain, to overrule the, I want to eat a pound and a half of chocolate right now. <laughs> and it's very hard to over, like me with cheesecake. I mean, one piece, is that all? And my brain is like screaming at me, two pieces, three pieces. And <laughs> so it's the same thing with other kind of behaviors, including fishing. Yeah, I remember hearing, I no, I must've been at a very early MPA meeting up in Eureka and a, Recreational angler said, I swear to God, this is true. And they were talking like a particular reef. He said, if you prevent anglers from fishing there, they'll go home and beat their wives. 
And I remember, wow. and you know what? <laughs> Maybe it, there's a, a germ. I mean, I'm sure that that's not true as stated. But what he was saying is they're going to be really angry. And again, it's that, well, can't we like, you know, be moderate about things? What happened to that? So I got a question about cow cod because I have never caught one because they've never been legal to catch in the, I don't know, what is it? 18 years I've lived here in, in uh-huh. the West Coast. What's the big deal about them? Are they like yellow eyes in the sense that they're just big, giant, fun to eat rockfish? Well, sure. Uh, <laughs> but there's <laughs> there's more to it. I mean, I, I'll just tell you from my personal experience, I have a tattoo of a cow cod on my upper right arm. I have two fish tattoos and one of them is a cow cod. The first one I got was a cow cod. And it was because, first of all, in Southern California, they are one of the biggest fish. I mean, obviously there are black sea bass and stuff like that, but they were one of the biggest fish that a normal angler could catch. Someone who did not go out to Catalina and catch yellowtail. They were the biggest bottom fish. And um, they're really striking. They're kind of reds and yellows and pinks. They got huge fins and a massive mouth. And on a typical party boat, they were the jackpot. And they weren't even very common at the time. So you also had that kind of rarity aspect. Um, In many cases with rockfish, you never even knew you had them. In the days before spiderline, when you had you know, monofilament filling your foro or Dacron and and you were fishing in 600 feet of water, it was hard to know that you actually had anything on your line. It was kind of heavier. You got a cow cod and you at least know, oh my God, I got something. Okay. Uh, Or I'm snagged. One of the two. I can't tell. Um, (laughs) So so, they're kind of the grouper of the area. They are exactly the grouper of the area. And uh, once I started going down the little sub and seeing them in action, they're hilarious because they primarily live in caves and crevices. And in a number of cases, they would see the sub coming and they would stick their heads in a cave. The rest of their body is out. It looked like a cartoon of an ostrich. And so you would just see this uh, 20 pound fish with their butts sticking out of a cave. But, yep, they must be safe because, you know, they couldn't see you. It, they're just hilarious fish. I just love them so much. So I remember just deciding that I was going to get a fish tattoo. This is, let's see, my daughter's 43 and she was about 11, about 12. So this is whatever it was, you know, 30 years ago. And uh, I told him I was going to get a tattoo. And my daughter said, oh, you're going to want a dozen of them. And my son, who was uh, 10 at the time, he said, well, where are you going to get it? And I said, I, I don't know, my arm probably. He said, well, if you don't like it, you can always gnaw it off. And I... <laughs> <laughs> Which is a key to their personality types, even even today. So, uh, so I did. I got it from uh, James McDermott. It was cool. Uh, nice. I love tattoos. Do you have a tattoo? I have one. It's my family's coat of arms on my right shoulder. All right. See, I, that's great. But I figure I'll be a billion years old and I'll still be a Shaw. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> you should probably get a rockfish tattoo. I hate to disappoint you, but I've been thinking about getting the salmon of knowledge because of Scottish extraction. What is the salmon? of? I have no idea what that is. Well, it's an Atlantic salmon for starters. Um, but what's the knowledge part? So I, he, he, in Celtic mythology, he is the bringer of wisdom. Ah. So why don't you get the rockfish of knowledge, which in Milton Love mythology is the bringer of sex? It would have to be a China cod then. Uh, absolutely. China yeah, rockfish? Fabulous. Oh, my be- God. So, okay. So, I bring that up because it is my favorite rockfish to eat, and they are mm-hmm. super cool to look at. 
I definitely want to talk about what are the eating differences between the rock. Ah, there are yes. people. So like I will tell people they're all fine. They're all pretty similar. But then if I get to talk to someone like you or somebody like, you know, Johnny Camizo or like people who really know rockfish. Yes, uh-huh. there are differences. So I'll start with China cod have a finer texture. Yes. And Boccaccio have a grouper like consistency. So my question for you is, let's just take an example. Let's say we took a little cube of muscle from the same part of a rockfish's body and we had 10 different species, a little cube, and we dip them all in oil so they're all cooked and we put them out in a plate. Could you tell the difference in taste? I would know differences by flake and texture. So right. I would be able to pick a Boccaccio out. I would probably be able to pick a China cod out. Uh-huh. And then I could probably also pick out, oh, well, that's a big ass something. So probably a vermilion or a yellow eye or something like that. Right. And, and that's precisely it. Um, as far as I know, it's all textural differences. And all of us who are in this business have participated in those kind of tastes off. Uh, in fact, uh, just before COVID hit, I uh, know not just before, but two years ago, I'm staring at my lab. We have a backyard here and we have a friend who's a commercial fisherman. He brought in 11 species of rockfish and he pan fried every single one of them. And everybody in the lab and some friends, we all drank wine and tried to figure out which one we liked the best. And it turned out it was all textural. And I hadn't done that in a long time. And by golly, there were ones like Ovalis, uh, speckled rockfish, which is kind of built like a blue rockfish. Mm. I'm going like, oh, kind of mushy, not so good. But Bocacci's are like really firm. Right. And they chew back. You chew on them and there's not a lot of give. And that's that what makes my- them, you know, they're also called salmon grouper. They are. And, they are called and they're like, well, why the hell would you call those a salmon grouper? I'm like, it's neither. Actually, right. if you put it right next to a scamp grouper, they're very uh-huh. similar in texture. Yeah, right. And so my wife really likes soft fish. She likes um, like blues. Uh, it, well, she likes like English soul and Dover soul and blues. And, and I just like them to fight back a little bit. And so to the point, all the bottom fish, their musculature and no one has actually ever looked on the cellular level, but the bottom rockfish, they tend to have flakier muscles, muscles that flake when they're cooked. And the fishes that kind of school like blues and Johnny Bass, you know, all of rockfish, they tend to have that kind of, to me, mushier uh, texture. And then Calcod, it's interesting, an associate of mine, Mike Wagner, used to be a fish processor. He was very creative. He's the guy who started the angel shark fishery and started in a big way the uni, the sea urchin fishery. So he was very creative. Hmm. And some of his creation were that fishermen would bring in a cow cod and he would sell them as white sea bass. Very creative, very <laughs> creative man. And no one ever came back and went, well, wait a minute. This, is, this isn't a white sea bass. So, um, yeah. So that you, tells you, me that a cow cod has a very, very different texture than like a vermilion. Right. Now, vermilions, as you pointed out, they have a very different texture. And if you actually look at what they do, how they behave, they behave differently than a lot of other rockfish. So you can generally lump rockfish into the ones that just sit and don't do anything. I shouldn't say sit. Sometimes they do. They actually rest right on the bottom. But a lot of times they kind of hover 
two or three feet above the bottom. You almost never see some of these species more than six feet above the bottom, but they're just not doing anything. And that's the the hardheads. Uh, well, the China's China's actually they do sit a lot. China's gophers, black and yellows, they'll just sit. Um, and then you have the ones that are actually swimming around. And that's the blues. Bocacci's actually will swim around to a certain extent. But then you have canaries and vermilions. And then there's a newly described species that looks like a vermilion, the sunset rockfish. And they... Chili peppers uh, too? Uh, chilies act like Bocacci's. Okay. Right. Yeah. So they're kind of swimming around and and you'll find chilies. Oh, my goodness. You'll find chilies 20, 30, 40 feet above the bottom in, in schools sometimes. Um, I love chilies because they're like really easy to fillet as a deckhand yes. man. <laughs> blues uh, and blacks. Blues, Whoop, blacks, <laughs> olives, chilies, as opposed to coppers, which not only never <laughs> die, so they're they never like, die. You're so they're right. Fucking spining you and they're dulling your knife. I just hate them. And there are times I remember I've got limits uh, of them. Well, exactly. And in Santa Barbara, poor deckhands, you know, will have gunny sacks filled with coppers. Oh, my God. So reds and canaries, things like that. Um, they're kind of in between what they do. They're kind of aggregating. So they're not solitary like starries and so forth. They're aggregating and they're kind of right above the bottom, but they're kind of moving around. So it's that in-between behavior. And I mean, I've seen off of uh, Big Creek, which is a reserve off the Big Sur coast in maybe, uh, how deep were we? I don't know, 200 feet of water. Um, I've seen schools of hundreds of reds, adult reds, all just kind of milling around, kind of moving around. So that may lead to a different texture in their muscles. It could be. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually pretty hopeful about our rock fishing situation right yeah. now. We seem yeah, yeah, to be yeah. doing well. The catches are good. You know, I mean, I don't get the sense that we're on a bubble, but I could be wrong. Well, I mean, it totally depends on the M word moderation. And a lot of that will come down from on high. We'll just have to see what the managers allow commercial fishermen and recreational anglers to take. Um, this year, the Pacific Fisheries Management Council, which really oversees much of the commercial fisheries on the Pacific coast, there was a move to open some of the previously off-limits area to trawling. And uh, I can't remember all the details because it's just not my area, but there was going to be a trade-off. So the commercial fishermen were going to give up certain areas to be allowed to drag in other areas. Oh, like to give it to give the other places a rest. I guess. I mean, I've learned the hard way not to go like, oh, yeah, because I'm not sure. But there was a compromise reached. And so the question is, well, what's going to happen in those areas where they're going to allow dragging? And the great problem, which is less of a problem now, but is still there. And I used to see this at the council meetings back in the 70s, 80s. I'd go, you know, if they were in Sacramento, I'd go and visit, is uh, the way the regulations were created is that there would be a group of fisheries biologists and they would be assigned, you got to do a stock assessment of widow rockfish. So you go out there and you do your best, but you don't know exactly how many widow rockfish. Uh, you don't have the data. And even if you had a lot of data, what you would do is you would bracket it. You would go like, okay, there's X hundred thousand metric tons of widows out there, but it could be this high or it could be this low. Right. And then you would give that number 
to the council. There's essentially no biologists on the council. It's uh, representatives of the commercial industry, representatives of the recreational industry, uh, somebody from Fish and Game, Oregon Fish and Wildlife, blah, blah, blah. And so the council's sitting up there and they have this number, but it could be as high as this or it could be as low as this, but there's this kind of middle number, right? And then you open it up to comment and you would have uh, the Oregon Trawlers Association come in, these guys with big gold chains, and they would go like, well, you can't lower the quota. My kids are going to starve. They're going to live under a bridge. I'm going to have to sell them into prostitution. And it's really, <laughs> it's really hard for a bunch of people to sit up there and listen to commercial fishermen and sometimes recreational fishermen talk about having to sell their eldest son into gay prostitution. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's hard. You have to be hard nosed to go like, well, fuck them. I'm sorry. Um, the widow rockfish are more important than your eldest son who, by the way, can fend for himself when he's 18. So what they would almost inevitably do is they would go like, well, you know, maybe there's more. Maybe it's the higher limit or at the very least, it's the middle limit. And so for decades, there was really no attempt to lower the quotas down to something that might be, it turns out, sustainable. So there was a lot of unsustainable fisheries back then. Now, People actually have kind of wised up. Even the council has kind of wised up. So to your point about whether things are sustainable, yeah, maybe. The other huge unknown, massive unknown, is what effect global warming is going to have right. uh, in the ocean. So uh, there are three major effects that are going to happen and are happening now. Two of them, no question, are happening now. And one is looming, probably looming in the future. So the ones that are happening now is... Uh, Oxygen shoaling. So in oxygen shoaling, you have deoxygenated water, water that is deep and has very little oxygen. Over time, it's tending to go shallower and shallower and shallower. And that happens like right now off Oregon, where you have these tongues of deoxygenated water coming in and it drives fish into shallower and shallower water. And that's actually starting to happen off California. We just published, not yet, on the 16th of September, uh, I was involved in a study at the Footprint, which is a fabulous reef. Oh, my God, it's my favorite reef on the whole planet. It sits just outside Santa Cruz Island, and it comes up to about 300 feet, and uh, it's all rocky. You can run your sub into a cave, and then it shoots down to about uh, 1,000 feet of water, so a lot of depth. It used to be covered in fish in the 60s, I know, because I used to fish there. And then it's now a marine protected area. Fish are probably coming back. Anyway... Got a lot of fish. And I used to do surveys there from 1995 to 2011 at different depths. And we showed that many of the species on average are getting shallower and shallower and shallower over time. Hmm. And that's probably due to the fact that this low oxygen is driving them upwards. So, well, why is that a problem? Well, eventually, in theory, you're going to run out of habitat. At some point, the Boccaccio are going to be at the top of this feature in the worst case scenario. And they're going to go like, I can't breathe. And, you know, what's going to happen then? Uh, even if that doesn't happen, you're going to compress. It's called habitat compression. You're going to compress the Boccaccio habitat into smaller and smaller areas. So why is that a problem? Well, the management decisions right now are based on assumptions about where Boccaccio live. If they no longer live there, if they live in a smaller area, you're going to have to change the management policies. So that's the first thing, uh, which is happening. 
The second thing is um, ocean acidification. So ocean is getting more and more acid because ocean is absorbing carbon dioxide and it changes the acidity of the ocean. The pH is getting lower, which means it's getting more acid. Why is that a problem? Well, uh, a lot of shelled organisms. Oh, yeah, uh, that's right. They, this is uh, with their, their shells. It may, it, yes. And usually that's at the larval level. They cannot create shells in highly acidic ah. seawater conditions. So is that going to affect our little Boccaccio? No. Uh, it's going to affect probably. what it eats. It's going to affect what it eats and it's going to affect its habitat. For instance, there's some evidence that rockfishes really like to associate with sponges and deepwater corals. Well, what's going to happen when it gets really acidic? Are deepwater corals going to be able to maintain themselves or are they going to basically fall apart? If that happens, well, what does the Boccaccio associate with? Well, probably rocks, but is it going to be really happy or would it have been more happy with the things that have fallen apart? You can see that that's a big unknown, but that's another problem. The other problem is uh, raising temperature, ocean temperature. And we are getting these like really weird situations like the blob that was out in the Northeast Pacific, this big pool of relatively hot water. And what tends to happen during warm water periods like El Nino's is that most species of rockfish, they don't reproduce well. And fortunately for us, El Nino's last a year, year and a half, two years. And then the water gets cold again and the rockfishes are happily reproducing. Well, what happens if this is a permanent condition? Mm. Good news is it's probably good for tropical fish. <laughs> They're <laughs> used to it. So if you want to catch tropical species in Southern California, great. But if it means that rockfishes aren't reproducing, not so good. And so we have all of these things on the horizon. We can't measure that they're doing much damage now. And so back to your point, is this sustainable? Well, we don't know, but we don't know what's going to happen in the future and how that's going to impact what people are allowed to catch, basically. Tell me a rockfishing story, a fun story from all the years that you've been interacting with rockfish, and then I'll let you go. Okay, I'll tell you about the time I was cheated out of the jackpot, which <laughs> still bothers me when I was 16 years old. So what year is that? 1963. Um, so I lived in Santa Monica and there was a sport fishing landing at Paradise Cove, which is just north of Malibu. And they were starting to fish what's called Hidden Reef, which is actually a series of very small banks uh, located near Santa Barbara Island. We actually took the sub there a couple of times. So really the rocky. They're gorgeous. No longer hidden. No longer hidden, and they weren't actually hidden then because they were fishing them. So uh, Jack Ward, who owned the landing and eventually owned Cisco's in Oxnard and made so much money, he, I kid you not, he owned a bank. He, he, was, <laughs> he was very creative in the sport fishing industry, really remarkable. So he was starting to fish at Hidden Reef, and I would religiously read the uh, fish counts in the LA Times. And all of a sudden, Paradise Cove, they were going like 47 anglers, 112 cow cut. And I'm going like, Como? What's that about? Oh my God. So um, a phone call, and in fact, an article in the LA Times probably said, yeah, like uh, on Saturdays and Sundays, Jack Ward's uh, boat, the gentleman made eight knots. It would, could barely, <laughs> could barely, get, that's the slowest party boat I have ever been on. And it took three hours to get out to Hidden Reef. But, you know, we went out there. So Hidden Reef starts in about, 300 feet of water and, you know, winds up being in like 600. And so Ward was fishing early on. Everybody fishes shallow because it's easier until they fish it out. So he was fishing like 400, 450 feet of water. And uh, I remember I brought two rods out 
One with my jig master, my trusty jig master filled with a 20 pound monofilament. And I think I was using like an eight ounce sinker. You could get down. It was great. I caught some fish, bank rockfish, uh, no cockades. I got banks, some bocacis, but it was good. It was much better than fishing in Santa Monica where that place had been fished since the twenties. And you wound up fishing on year classes of Boccaccio. I mean, there was almost nothing else there. So this was like fabulous, right? And then I hung my gear up and in pulling on the line to free it, the line snapped right at the surface. Oh my God, no more line left on my uh, Jigmaster. But I did have, get this, I had a spinning reel, my Langley Spinator that had enough line. So now I'm fishing with like 400 feet down with my Langley Spinator and nice. my, my spinning rod. Okay, but you got to do what you got to do. So I remember I only had a single hook on and I had an anchovy. And by golly, I caught a 16-pound Boccaccio. That's one of the biggest Boccaccio I still have ever seen. I mean, I've seen them at 20 pounds, but not very commonly. It was a really big Boccaccio and I'm going like aces. So comes the time for the jackpot. So for those of you who are listening, jackpot, basically at the time, everybody who wanted to enter this contest put in a buck mm -hmm. and uh, you put in a buck and the person who has entered the contest who caught the largest fish and you do it on a, on a balance beam, uh, one fish against another uh, wins all the money, right? And there was like, I don't know, $35 in there, which at the time for me was a humongousoid amount of money. At the time, a trip on the Santa Monica party boat was $6.50. I was rich, right? So I get the uh, jackpot time, pull out my Boccaccio and it wins. I'm going like aces, man, I am going to be rich. So on the way in, I'm waiting for the deckhand to give me my money, right? And uh, we get near the port and I ask the deckhand politely, where's my money? And he said, oh man, I didn't tell you. Uh, yeah, this guy, his friend put a dollar in for him and didn't tell him. So his calcod was bigger than your Boccaccio. And I didn't have the wit to go like, I was just fucked out of $35. This is like <laughs> a lie. And it wasn't until, this shows you how naive I was. I, it wasn't until like 30 years later, <laughs> probably. I thought back and went, wait a minute. And so the only good part of this story is that those people are dead now, all of them. <laughs> I am 74. Those people, I don't think, could have lived to be 87, which is what they are now, probably, or 90. So I won. I mean, in a sense, I won. In a sense, I didn't win. I mean, to put in perspective, what would I have done? In those days, there was no social media. I could have gone on like uh, bloody decks and gone like, I was ripped off of the, my jackpot. I could have gone to what? could have gone to Jack Ward and Skipper and go like, I was ripped off. No way. That was a, <laughs> a dog eat dog time. Gone up to the landing. Hey, I was ripped off. Me, 16 year old guy. I was ripped. No, no way. I would, my dad would have had to be like the district attorney of LA for me to have gotten the money. And he wasn't. So, and then it wouldn't have mattered go. if it was 35 bucks. Yeah, no, exactly. That's an excellent point. <laughs> if he had been like the godfather of the mafia of L.A., same difference. I, you know, I, I could have had him torch the landing, but I, I wouldn't have had to. So anyway, that's the story that still eats away at me. We all have them. We all have them. Yeah, good. I'm glad. <laughs> Hope something eats away with you. Yeah, it does. It does. It's, it involves a gag grouper, some guy's girlfriend. and uh, Really? Yeah. Okay. So 
Yeah. So I'm uh, out of going out of Wilmington, North Carolina, and we're doing mm-hmm. a blue water bottom fishing trip. Yeah. And, you know, I don't catch a lot of gag grouper and gag grouper can get pretty big. Uh-huh. And, and so I'm up near the bow of the boat and there's this guy and his girlfriend to my right. And it's, they're catching, you know, everybody's catching fish, right? So grunts and porgies and black sea bass. And I'm fishing a heavy iron on the bottom. I'm kind of like dinking it in and out of the, the crevices and the holes because I'm uh-huh. looking for grouper. Sure enough, I hook up and it feels like a snag and then it shakes its head. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And this is a big fish. Uh-huh. And I'm not ashamed to say I did a little rail reeling on this fish because it was that big. That's okay. And so I'm, I'm working it up. I'm working it up. And all of a sudden, you know, people, there's a crowd with this guy's girlfriend who's right to my right. She catches a one pound black sea bass. Uh-huh. And she's like, net, net, I need the net. And this black sea bass is swimming around, right? Yeah. And I got color. I can see the fish. Right. I can and see I, where this is going. Keep and going. I can see the fish. And it's, it's, it's like, oh, my God. It's like a 40 some odd, oh. maybe bigger pound. It's Love a big it. ass gag grouper. Yeah. And so the deckhand is behind me with the net for my grouper. But the girlfriend and the boyfriend are screaming at him for the net for this one pound black sea bass. Yeah. And I'm yelling, lift the fish, lift the damn fish, lift sure. that fish. And the deckhand's yelling at her and she's not. And there's this black sea bass swimming around just under the surface. Yeah. Swims a circle around my line. Exactly. Bing. Yep. And I see this gag grouper go back to the bottom. And exactly. I'm, I'm shaking to right, right now because it was so bad that the, yeah. the deckhand grabbed me by the lapels and looked like nose to nose, like, let it go, man. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have two more stories. So uh, there used to be a TV show, uh, the Danny Thomas show. So Danny Thomas was the lead, the actor and comedian. And then in the show, he had a son. And the son was played by Rusty Hamer. Rusty Hamer was a child actor. And one day uh, out of Santa Monica, we were fishing rock cod and Rusty Hamer was on the boat. And I always fish the bow. I love fishing the bow rock cod because there's almost nobody up there. And you're on the stern. You got all these people around you and there's all these tangles. You can avoid tangles up on the bow. So there was about three of us all about the same age, probably 16. Rusty Hamer, his sleazy friend of his and me, and um, Oren Winfield had anchored up on this spot in like 300 feet of water. It's hard to anchor accurately. Yeah. And he had anchored in such a way that the bow was sitting over the rock, but the stern wasn't. So nobody was catching shit back there. And we were just pounding bocaccis one after another. And I caught, and I am sure I caught a really big bocaccio. The other two guys were just throwing their fish on the deck. And I caught one and put it in a bag. And Rusty Hamer after like five minutes, just insisted it was his fish. And we were screaming at each other. And Oren, who is like 70 years old, the skipper, and spent all of his time smoking cigarettes and coughing. He uh, <laughs> he was laughing. And finally, I just felt myself in danger. <laughs> I gave him the fucking fish. That was awful. But you know what? I was small and wore glasses. And, you know, there was that. Um, Damn, I had one other story about, oh, oh, being in tears. So Yellowtail, Yellowtail, you know, the jack. Um, oh, yeah. Re- yeah. Extremely rare in the Santa Monica area, particularly in the 50s. Water was cold. <laughs> Not other anymore. Than, uh, well, that's true. So other than during the El Nino year of 57, 58, a little burst of them in 63, there were just no Yellowtail at all. The water was too cold for them. They were all further south. Or Side the note, they were catching them in Pacifica two years ago. Yes. And in fact, they catch white sea bass there 
they catch them in Santa in Bay, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, fish have moved north. There's no question. Um, so what yellowtail there would be would come up. And I'm not kidding. For like a week, there'd be a little flurry of 10 pound ones in the fall. And then they'd retreat. They'd move south as the water cooled off. And so there was a little flurry. And and I, again, was on the, the all-day boat with Oren Winfield. And we were anchored up just north of Redondo on a little rock pile. And I caught one, one yelltail. I got it in the boat. And that was like the second one I ever caught. So that was like a big deal. Turns out, actually, I don't even like to eat yellowtail. But different story. And then I hooked another one. And, th- you know, this is fabulous. And I get up near color. And this old man tangles my line and yanks on it yanks on the line and pop there goes the yellowtail and i was in tears quite honestly and oren goes as usual has no sympathy whatsoever he always called me love he goes like ah don't cry love don't cry (laughs) (laughs) smoking coughing don't cry like that so you know there you go Uh, that's what i I never cried i just got mad (laughs) <laughs> well, you're a better man than I, again. Well, I'm from clearly. Jersey, right? So I'm going to throw yeah. hands with people. <laughs> no, it's it's all right. I'm surprised you didn't uh, punch the uh, uh, young woman out. That would have uh, been... I, was, I only punch women who punch me first. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> no, that's good. That, a code of honor. That's, no, uh, I was, that's I was, excellent. I was getting hot at the boyfriend for just like, just lift the damn fish. And the deckhand could tell that I was yeah. just... And he was just grabbing me, like drag me away. Like, just let it go, man. Just go have a beer, sit down, come back, you know. A wise move. That was actually a, a good move on his part. It I'm really was. It. it really was. No, I love it. And I picked it up because I've had to do the same to a couple guys when I was a deckhand. <laughs> so uh, I've sucked up all of your time. Thank you for this. This was jolly. This was awesome. Uh, I can't wait to uh, release this. The season releases starts in Labor Day. Yeah. And then we're going to just pump them out one after the other. We have all kinds of cool topics. So uh, I'll let you know when it runs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about anything you like. Uh, sure. We can cover other fish or I don't know, whatever you want to talk about. I, like I say, I have no life. I'm just sitting here <laughs> drinking tea. Um, I mean, if you're ever down here, uh, you know, there's places to buy uh, hard cider or we can drink beer or whatever. Yeah. And then we should go rock fishing. Oh man. I've been rock fishing one time in about, 10 years. Uh, the only rock cod fishing I do now is like for science. So uh, there's a guy who does genetics of rockfish, Peter Sudmont, who's at uh, UC Berkeley. He's like a stud in genetics. His PhD was on Neanderthal DNA. And oh, wow. uh, he emailed me about four years ago and said, oh, you know, I just got here. A new professor. want to work on rockfish genetics. And so we've been collaborating, catching fish for him, basically. So it was a good excuse to go out and kill fish to get uh, genetic material for him. He is about to publish a paper comparing rockfish that have a lifespan of 200 years with rockfish that have a lifespan of 15 years. Like, can you actually see different genes that coincide with longevity? So that was that was pretty cool. Stuff. That'll make the news. That'll make the news. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, cool. So, so if people wanted to get in touch with you, uh, how would somebody do that? Uh, you can email me love at lifesci.ucsb.edu. Those are the gauchos, aren't they? Yes, we are the gauchos. I forget that for years at a time. So (laughs) if you type in Milton Love UCSB, you'll probably see my email address. I have a website with all kinds of humorous shit that I've written. And I I will put the links to the books on there too. Yeah, if you could, yeah, it'd be great. If you link to the books and people can call me I don't care. Like I say, it's all good. Um, let's see. 
805-893-2935. I'm only in the lab a couple times a week, but I do have a machine and people send me photographs of fish, not daily, but certainly weekly. What is this? One of the favorite things these days, I don't know why, is people are catching odd colored rockfish. Mm. And the typical aberrant coloration is like a black rockfish that has big orange blotches on it, or the fins are orange or things like that. That kind of orange morph or a boccaccio with big black blotches. Oh, yeah. I've caught many of those. Right. And in fact, that's the most common, unusual color variation. That's actually a skin cancer. I thought Um, it was because the devil tried to catch them and they couldn't quite get it. Well, that's what skin cancer is. Even in humans, the devil tries to get you and you get away and it turns you, uh, uh, no. So it gives you, <laughs> it gives you melanoma. Melanoma is actually getting away from the devil. Um, so other rockfish will get this skin cancer that turns their skin black, but not in the quantity that Boccaccio do. In fact, it's not 100%, but almost every big Boccaccio will have some black. And in a lot of cases, it's like big tar patches. I've seen one cow cod. It actually had a little patch across its lip. It looked like Hitler. Oh, my God. Like a little mustache. <laughs> like cow Hitler. Uh, cow Hitler. <laughs> and uh, so, and then you may have seen this. Yellowtail rockfish are susceptible to little patches of like orange or yellow. Again, that's a skin cancer. It's not, it probably doesn't kill the fish, but it does alter the pigment cells that <laughs> are on the skin. So, so people send me those kind of photographs like all the time. Yeah. And I love to see photographs. It doesn't have to be rockfish. It can be anything. I've actually written papers. People will send me a photograph, particularly from Southern California. Look, I caught this. And it'll turn out to be the first time that a species has been documented from California. And so I'll write a paper about it. I'll throw the person's name on the paper. And it'll be like the first description of cardinal fish of this kind from California or whatever. That's cool. So I'm always looking for that kind of thing. Well, excellent. I will okay. uh, I will post all that stuff in the show notes. And uh, this has been fantastic. And I'll let you know what it runs. All right. Thank you, kiddo. Thanks a lot. All right. See ya. I got to say, that was one of the most enjoyable podcasts I've ever done in the four years that I've been doing this podcast. So I hope you liked it as well. Thanks again for listening. I am Hank Shaw. And this is the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast brought to you by Filson and eFish. As always, you can follow me on social media, on Instagram, where I am most active. I am Hunt, Gather, Cook. I also run the Hunt, Gather, Cook Facebook group. You have to answer some questions to get into the group. Just tell me that you heard me on my podcast and I will let you in. And the core of what I do is my website, which is Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. And you can get to that at HuntGatherCook.com. Talk to you next week. Tight lines and good times. Take it easy.